welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation, and instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press start and zero on your touchdown telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Grace, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's workshop. And today's workshop is a collaborative effort between the International Waldenstrom's Macroglobulinemia Foundation and Cancer Care. And it's a, it's a partnership that we've had for many years, and this program is um, a partnership between IWMF and Cancer Care. And today's program is on WM, Treatment Progress, and is, this program today is supported by Bigen, and Pharmacyclics LLC, an AbbVie company, and Janssen Biotech Inc., and administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs LLC. And I really want to thank them for their support of this program. Um, now, we have many of you on the call today. There's over 226 participants on the call today. You come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have a number of participants um, from other countries. I'm just going to name them Australia, Canada, France, Iran, Israel, Lithuania, Netherlands, Sweden, and the United Kingdom. So it's really a global call as well. And um, we're delighted that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Andrew Brannigan. And Dr. Brannigan is attending a physician, Massachusetts General Hospital Cancer Center, Harvard Medical School. And he'll be presenting on an overview of Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia, including staging, symptoms, and signs in the context of COVID-19 and its variants, translating genomic findings into new treatment opportunities for WM, frontline treatment for WM, and current standard of care for new treatment approaches and new treatment approaches. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Brannigan. Thank you so much, Carol, and, and hello, everybody. It's really a pleasure to, to be speaking to you all again. Um, as you heard, that's, that's quite a list of um, topics, and I'm going to touch on all of them, and, and at the end, we have time for questions. So if anyone wants to hear more, uh, I'm happy to dive back into anything. Uh, so first off, Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia. Uh, uh, what is this uh, disease? Uh, well, it was first described by Jan Waldenstrom in the 1940s, from, uh, a man from Sweden, very remarkable scientist. Uh, and it's, it's a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, but interestingly, it's also a plasma cell disorder. So the basis of the disease is having bone marrow involvement with uh, lymphoplasmocytic lymphoma, so a mix of lymphocytes and plasma cells, as well as monoclonal IgM. Um, and and it's, it's important to remember this exists on a spectrum. So Waldenstrom's always starts with a pre-malignant state, uh, and that would be IgM MGUS, monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance. So it always starts as a benign state. That benign state does not always become Waldenstrom's, but Waldenstrom's always started with a benign state. And there are disorders in between where IgM may cause problems uh, and not quite have enough bone marrow involvement to be called Waldenstrom's, and those would be called IgM-related disorders. Um, so back to Waldenstrom's, well, 
um, what kind of trouble does it cause and, and does it need to be treated? Uh, well, what's interesting about Waldensum is it can cause many different manifestations uh, and uh, no two patients seem to be exactly the same. Uh, you can have low blood counts from the involvement in the bone marrow, for instance. You can have involvement of lymph nodes or uh, large organs like the spleen, as you see with other lymphomas. Uh, and there can also be various consequences to that IgM uh, antibody, which is bigger than our other antibodies uh, and can cause certain complications, including thick blood or hyperviscosity, uh, neuropathies, which we're going to hear more about later, uh, cryoglobulins, for example, um, amyloid, uh, or even central nervous system involvement. But it's important to remember many patients with Waldenstrom's are asymptomatic, don't have any symptoms, uh, and, and in that case, uh, we recommend they not be treated because all treatments um, uh, have some side effects, and uh, many, many Waldenstrom's patients uh, will never need to be treated, in fact. And, and I think part of the title of, of task to me said staging of Waldenstrom's. There's really no overt uh, staging system as there are for other cancers that uh, begin localized and then spread. Uh, Waldenstrom's is a systemic disease. So, so normally, rather than staging, we think of prognostic factors, which factors might make the Waldenstrom's disease more or less aggressive uh, when we're choosing therapy. So some of those factors that might make Waldenstrom's more aggressive would be older age, uh, being anemic, uh, having low platelet counts, having a high beta-2 microglobulin, a marker uh, of the bone marrow involvement, uh, and, and, or having an IgM over uh, 7,000. Uh, so the more of those things tend to associate uh, with uh, being more aggressive, uh, but that was also, these, a lot of these studies were done before we had uh, mutational uh, assessments in Waldenstrom's, which I want to now focus on. Uh, there's really two really major uh, important mutations involved with Waldenstrom's. The first, uh, MITE88, uh, this mutation was, was first uh, described as being so common in Waldenstrom's patients by the Trion lab. Uh, and in fact, 95% of patients uh, with Waldenstrom's have this mutation. And it's, it's, a, it's a, um, a molecule we know that's involved in B-cell signaling, but when it's mutated, it's actually turned on. And so there's this constant growth and survival signal to the Waldenstrom's tumors, uh, and that's why they continue to grow uh, and secrete IgM. The second most common mutation is known as CXCR4. And this is seen in about 30 to 40% of patients with Waldenstrom's. Uh, and it does a couple things. One, it, it also provides pro-survival signaling. Uh, this is from the bone marrow stroma. So the, the microenvironment around the Waldenstrom cells can support through this pathway. And it also activates certain drug resistance signaling pathways. Uh, for example, uh, it can it lead to resistance to a brutinib. And patients who have this CXCR4 mutation tend to make more IgM. Uh, and it, but it's important to note that uh, it can be hard to find. So with Waldenstrom's, there's uh, not all tumor cells are the same, and that mutation may develop in a small subset of tumor cells and over time uh, uh, increase into, into more of the tumor cells. So when it's just in a few of the tumor cells, it may be hard to detect uh, with testing, even if that testing was done. Um, and now in terms of upfront treatment, um, uh, present day we really think about two major uh, pathways when we think about treating Waldenstrom's up front. 
One is using uh, rituximab-based combinations. Uh, rituxin is a monoclonal antibody um, that targets a protein on the Waldenstrom's, uh, on the Waldenstrom's tumor cells, uh, and, and that is usually um, combined with another drug. And the other drug may be a chemotherapy like bendamustine or cyclophosphamide or a proteasome inhibitor. Uh, and the most common would be a drug called Velcade. And other examples would be carfilzomib or exazomib. Uh, and with this strategy, usually there's a, a certain number of cycles and then you're done. Uh, and, and um, you know, most people will go into a remission and not need any more therapy, uh, with the exception if you were to have uh, some maintenance rituxin alone. But the second um, pathway we now have, because of these mutations I alluded to before, are using BTK inhibitors. And these molecules are pills uh, that you take every day, um, and it overcomes the uh, uh, mid-88 mutation and, and allows the tumor cells to uh, uh, not be able to secrete their IgM and, and sometimes die. Uh, the difference is this pill has to be taken continuously. Uh, and the first approved drug, and this was the first FDA-approved drug uh, for, specifically for Waldenstrom's in the United States, was abrutinib. Uh, and the second approved drug is danubrutinib. Uh, and another drug that um, we have available is acalabrutinib. Now, these all have differences. The, the, the side effects are a little different for each. For, for example, abrutinib has higher rates of atrial fibrillation. Uh, and zanubrutinib has slightly higher rates of neutropenia or having a low weight count. Uh, but these are very effective drugs uh, and are often considered upfront. And in fact, when we decide, how do you decide between these, these two pathways, the mutational status is very helpful. So if someone has just the mid-88 mutation, uh, oftentimes that's very appealing to, to a patient too to be able to take a BTK inhibitor. Um, but if they have that second mutation, the CXCR4, a mutation, we know that there's some resistance, especially to abrutinib. Uh, and for example, um, one way to potentially overcome that, and we know that from one of the trials, is to add rituxin to that BTK inhibitor. So that may be one strategy, or to just use a, a rituxin-based combination uh, for somebody with that mutation. If you have neither mutation, so no mid-88 or CXCR4, again, this, this is a small percentage, um, you know, usually uh, we think about rituxin combinations, but there's some growing data that zanubrutinib, the second approved BTK inhibitor, uh, is effective in this population. Uh, so that's another consideration. Um, other things to keep in mind is sometimes if the IgM is very high, uh, you may need a temporary uh, procedure called plasmapheresis, uh, which is an apheresis procedure where the IgM is taken off by the blood bank, but it's a temporary procedure and should be a bridge uh, to getting one of the therapies I mentioned. Uh, and if you have really a lot of what we call bulky disease, uh, uh, very large lymph nodes or organs, sometimes uh, bendamustine uh, is the pres preserved agent, for example. And there's a lot of different subtleties. Um, I also wanted to, to mention a little bit about COVID-19. Uh, this, this was one of the topics uh, attached to me. And um, I, I think this really highlighted the risk for infections in patients with Waldenstrom's, which is something we've known for a long time. And, and even early in the pandemic, it seemed that blood cancer patients were having worse outcomes. Uh, and, and when you looked at antibodies, so protective antibodies against the uh, COVID, uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus, the spike antibodies, they seemed to be lowest 
in non-Hodgkin's lymphomas like Waldenstrom's. And, uh, 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 and I'm uh, conducting a study along with Dr. Soroshek, um, and we're looking in more detail at responses to Waldenstrom's. Some of the things we found, as well as others, are if you're receiving a, a B-cell depleting therapy, that may be rituxin or a BTK inhibitor as an example, less likely to have um, high numbers of protective antibodies. If the disease is active, uh, if you are male, if you have a low white count or low antibodies, these are other factors that could lead to being less likely to have protective antibodies. Um, the good news is that these antibodies seem to go up with booster doses, um, uh, uh, and, um, uh, and the other thing to look at immunity is the T cell uh, function. Uh, and this is, this is harder to measure, less people are doing it, uh, but the reassuring thing is even patients who did not have detectable spike antibodies, they were able to, 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 to show uh, T cell uh, activity. And that T cell activity, uh, even though it was lower than healthy controls, was just as functional in being able to kill uh, the COVID virus. Uh, the difference with the antibodies are, if you looked at the functional ability of the antibodies, and that's one of the things we did in our study, uh, they did seem to be less functional. So, so lots of stuff there with COVID. I don't have time to go too much into it, uh, but just wanted to come back to the bottom line, which is vaccines, which we feel are very important. The current CDC recommendation is to have three dose primary series and one booster. So that's a total of four vaccines. Uh, if, if it's been four months since that fourth dose, uh, there's some uh, growing evidence that a, another booster might be beneficial, uh, but the CDC still recommends only uh, four total doses. Uh, another thing that, that's an important concept is what we call pre-exposure prophylaxis. So how else can you protect yourself from getting COVID? And there is a monoclonal antibody that's approved called Evushield, uh, and this is approved for people at high risk, such as those with, with Waldenstrom's. Uh, priority is given to patients who are on an active therapy, uh, in fact. And so that's a consideration. And um, you know, one expert that I know thinks of it like this as belts and suspenders. So uh, rather than just having a belt or a suspender, if you have your vaccines and your antibody, that's having belt and suspenders. Uh, and I'll just end with one comment. That's if you ever get a COVID infection, it is very important to call your doctor immediately. And that's because there are therapies available uh, and these therapies need to be started within a certain amount of time. So for example, one of the most effective therapies available now is an antiviral pill called Paxlovid. Uh, and this is actually 89% effective at reducing death or being hospitalized uh, from COVID. And so you'd wanna call your doctor right away. So, you, so this could be considered or whatever else is available at the current time, given the current uh, variants. Um, and so, uh, so with that, I'll stop. I hope I didn't go over too much time. Carol. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Brannigan. That was really outstanding, such a stellar presentation and um, a lot of wonderful information. You really set the stage for today's program, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. They're already coming in, so um, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and um, our next uh, speaker is Dr. Shana um, Sarosek. And Dr. Sarosek um, is physician assistant professor of medicine, 
Harvard Medical School, Bing Center for Waldenstrom's Macroglobulinemia, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. And Dr. Sarosek will be addressing treatment for relapsed refractory WM, clinical trial updates for WM, how research contributes to treatment options, communicating with the healthcare team about your quality of life, and follow-up care appointments and plans. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Sarosek. Thank you so much, Carolyn, for the introduction. I'm excited to be here today, and I hope to just give this um, quick 10-minute review of these topics, and I hope this is really informative um, for all of you. So the first thing I'm going to talk about, as mentioned, is treatment for relapsed or refractory Waldenstrom's. And I think this is really an exciting topic because we're very fortunate these days to have many incredible therapies available for treatment. Um, Waldenstrom's is what we call a chronic disease or a disease that we know that patients will live with um, for the rest of their lives. And we just have to be able to deal with relapses of the disease as they come up. But as I said, we have many great therapies for that. And before I talk about therapies specifically, I'll just mention so that everyone knows the difference between relapsed or refractory Waldenstrom's. So relapsed is typically the word we use when a patient had a prior therapy their disease responded well, and then the disease kind of starts to grow or progress again. And refractory Waldenstrom's is Waldenstrom's that didn't respond well to the therapy that the patient just got. Maybe it didn't um, respond deep enough or didn't respond at all. And that's uncommon to happen in Waldenstrom's, but we do see it sometimes. But the good news, even if that's happening, is we have a lot of therapies to try that can then get the disease under control. So I'm briefly going to review some treatment options um, to use for relapsed or refractory Waldenstrom. Um, but as I mentioned, there are many options, and these are constantly changing. So even a few months from now, and certainly years from now, the options that I'm mentioning now are going to be even different because things are progressing so well in this field and a lot of research is being done. So as Dr. Brannigan mentioned, there are a few core therapies that are used in the upfront setting in Waldenstrom. And many of these are used at the time of relapse or if a patient has refractory disease. And we don't have a lot of patients with Waldenstrom's. It is a rare disease. So we don't have a lot of clinical trials that really tell us what's the best order to use these therapies. So the good news is for us that if you had one therapy up front, you can switch to another one later. And it's really not important the order that, that these medications are given in. Um, so, for example, one common therapy, rituximab bendamustine, so that's a monoclonal antibody with chemotherapy, um, a patient could get that as their first line of therapy or later as a second or a third option for therapy. Um, rituximab with bendamustine is very common, as Dr. Brannigan said, especially with patients who have CXCR4 mutations. It's a limited-duration therapy. So when patients get that treatment, it's for about four to six months. It's an excellent therapy for patients, especially if you have outside disease that's not just in the lymph nodes or bone marrow, so maybe involving an additional organ. Um, it's not very common for that to happen, but patients can have involvement of the liver or the lung or something of that nature, and this would be a good therapeutic option. Another option that can be used for relapsed Waldenstrom's is rituximab with what we call a proteasome inhibitor. So the most common is bortezomib or exazomib. 
And this is, again, a limited duration therapy, usually given for about six months um, for the beginning part of therapy. And the, the downside for some patients with this type of therapy with a proteasome inhibitor is that this can cause neuropathy. And many patients with Waldenstrom's already have neuropathy. So we have to be careful with this regimen, although it's very effective, so that we don't worsen that side effect of neuropathy if a patient already has that. Um, another option for therapy is, are the BTK inhibitors that were mentioned, the brutinib, zanubrutinib, acalabrutinib. All of these have been studied both in patients with newly diagnosed Waldenstrom's and also in relapse disease. Um, the difference with this therapy is the treatment is given indefinitely. So essentially, as long as the patient is tolerating treatment and the disease is responding to the treatment, then we would continue the treatment indefinitely. Um, and luckily, because of these newer therapies and these targeted agents, they've actually been very effective and patients can stay on these for years with great disease control. I will mention one thing specifically that we are learning, though, about BTK inhibitors is sometimes when patients stop these medications like abrutinib or zanubrutinib, their IgM can go up pretty quickly, even if they hold it for surgery or, or for some other reason or they're starting a new therapy, you can get an IgM increase or rebound. And we're learning that, that sometimes it's important to overlap the therapies if possible. So for example, if you're on abrutinib, your disease is progressing and you're going to start chemotherapy, we'll often recommend that a patient, that their treatments will overlap for a month or so um, so that you prevent that spike up in IgM when you stop your BTK inhibitor and you give the new treatment time to work um, before stopping that. So that's something I think just to keep in the back of your mind um, for if you're someone who progresses on a BTK inhibitor and needs to transition to a new therapy. Another therapeutic option that was just added to the treatment guidelines this year is a medication called Venetoclax, and it was added to the guidelines to be used for relapse disease. This is a medication that's FDA-approved in multiple other diseases, in leukemia and lymphoma, and it has a very high response rate in Waldenstrom's. It's an oral medication, and this medication works differently than any of our previous treatments for Waldenstrom's. It actually works to help a cell um, in the process of dying because cancer cells just sometimes lose the ability to kill themselves and to commit suicide. And the, um, this treatment actually helps a cell turn that process back on so it can kill itself. It's generally well-tolerated therapy and um, patients do well. We do have to monitor for some side effects as with any therapy like um, gastrointestinal symptoms or watching the healthy blood counts like the white blood cells. But it's another great option that just became available this year for relapsed Waldenstrom's and the guidelines. Um, another thing I'll just mention about relapse therapy, because this question comes up a lot, is patients will ask if um, they can use the same treatment they had before. So if you had rituximab and demustine a few years later, you relapse, could you use the same? Um, although that's possible in some cases, we typically don't do that because we'd love to approach the disease from a different angle and maybe try a new therapy um, that might allow the cancer to die in a different way and control the disease a little bit better for a longer period of time. Um, so I just want to mention that briefly. And another really crucial part of treatment for um, Waldenstrom's in general, whether it's relapsed or newly diagnosed, um, and my next topic to talk about is clinical trials. 
and how that contributes to treatment options. Clinical trials are really a crucial part of developing new therapies um, in Walden-Stroms. They're a way that we can determine is a drug going to be successful and is the drug going to be well tolerated in our patients with Walden-Stroms. And um, we are always encouraging patients if they're able, if it's possible and there's a trial they qualify for to participate and we're eternally grateful to patients because participation in clinical trials really is what moves this field forward and allows us to have new treatments added to the guidelines and really explore um, how we can best use these treatments to be effective in Waldenstrom's. And I just want to give you an idea of some key medications that are currently being used in studies for Waldenstrom's. And I can't give an exhaustive list because there are so many um, treatments in the pipeline, but I will mention a couple of things. So for example, there's a new drug that was referred to as Loxo305, now called pertubrutinib. It's a new type of BTK inhibitor. And although it works in the same pathway as the older BTK inhibitors, it actually has a new way of binding to the cancer cell that allows this drug to be effective in many cases when abrutinib or zanubrutinib um, become ineffective or the disease progresses. Um, we've had patients at our center on the trial with this pertubrutinib. We have, I know there's some upcoming um, new trials coming up using pertubrutinib, and I'm really excited to see how this is going to develop for Waldenstrom's and be another exciting oral, well-tolerated therapy, I'm hopeful, um, for the treatment of Waldenstrom's. There are also other newer therapies that haven't been tried in Waldenstrom's before, but have been used in um, lymphomas, for example, a drug called Loncastuximab. That's another type of monoclonal antibody. So like rituximab, it's targeted to one specific protein on a, on a cell, and um, it can deliver a cancer-killing treatment to the cancer cell. Um, and we're really excited. It's a drug called an antibody drug conjugate. That's the type of therapy it is. And um, we're using that for the first time in Waldenstrom's, and I'm excited to see how that goes. And another big topic that's um, coming up in clinical trials for Waldenstrom's is combining multiple effective therapies with the hope of having a short-term therapy that offers a deep response and a therapy that patients don't have to take indefinitely. Um, and a few examples of this, so acalabrutinib, one of the BTK inhibitors, is being combined with a medication um, called obinutuzumab. So that's another antibody similar to rituximab. So combining those two might be helpful. There's a newer version of a drug like venetoclax um, that's also being combined with ibrutinib or rituximab. And um, there are also multiple trials that are working towards finding therapies for specific features or problems that are seen in Waldenstrom. So that CXCR4 mutation that Dr. Brannigan mentioned, there are trials targeting CXCR4. There are trials targeting anti-mag neuropathy, so a specific type of neuropathy that I'll, I think you'll hear about later in this presentation. So there are really um, excellent options coming up. And in general, I think um, to transition into my next topic, I just think it's important whether you're on a trial, you have newly diagnosed or relapsed disease, that you make sure you have open communication with your healthcare team about um, what's going on with you during treatment and your quality of life. Because really a key factor for patients with Waldenstrom's is making sure that we um, are addressing their quality of life. Because we know patients with Waldenstrom's are going to live a very long time and we'd like them to have good quality of life when that happens and only treat when necessary 
and even when the treatment is ongoing, to be able to adjust the treatments, um, whether by decreasing the dose, changing the dosing, or changing treatments, because there are so many options that I really think it's imperative that we make sure our patients have quality of life. So communicating openly with your team, whether it's via phone or email or medical record system, whatever you set up with your providers is very important. And additionally, having a firm follow-up plan. Whether you're on treatment or not, we want to be able to monitor, stop problems before they develop, and really keep our patients on a good health to a good path to being healthy with their walled and stroms. So I'll close on that note and allow us to move on to the next presentation, but hopefully that was helpful. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Sarasek. That was an outstanding and another stellar presentation. And actually giving lots of information to people. Um, I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. And also you're highlighting the importance of communication um, with the healthcare team. It is so critically important. And of course, uh, information about clinical trials. So it's just a wonderful presentation. And um, so there'll be definitely questions for you um, in the Q&A. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Prashant Kapoor, and Dr. Kapoor is Associate Professor of Medicine, Consultant, Division of Hematology, Mayo Clinic. And Dr. Kapoor will be addressing controlling symptoms and treatment side effects, reducing complications of WM, managing and treating peripheral neuropathy, guidelines to prepare telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, and discussion of open notes. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Kapoor. Thank you, Carolyn, for giving me, me this opportunity to participate today. It's my pleasure, and I would go straight to my first topic, which is uh, controlling symptoms and treatment-related toxicities. As you all know, weight loss, loss of appetite, night sweats, and fatigue are symptoms that may be disease-related and are indications to start treatment. With respect to fatigue, it is quite important to determine the cause of fatigue, and sometimes it could be related to iron deficiency. And if it is related to anemia uh, that is primarily associated with Waldenstrom-related overcrowding of the bone marrow, typically with the WM-directed treatment, the hemoglobin goes up, and fatigue and symptoms like shortness of breath do improve. Although I must confess, sometimes patients do require transfusion of blood products, including red blood cells and platelets. Uh, with respect to the treatment-related symptoms, uh, if fatigue is treatment-related and, a, and uh, a fixed duration regimen uh, that you just learned about, such as bendamustine and rituximab is being used, we may be able to reduce the number of cycles from six to four without necessarily compromising the efficacy of the treatment. And with, B, with the BDK inhibitors, usually fatigue occurs early on uh, after initiation of therapy, and typically it does not require treatment interruption or dose reduction. But if it is persistent, dose reduction may be an option. Uh, it is important to maintain good diet, and I can't overemphasize the importance of sleep hygiene and exercising regularly, ruling out other causes of fatigue, including thyroid dysfunction, and, uh, the, uh, and ruling out coexisting AL amyloidosis. Uh, there are many other uh, treatment-related symptoms, such as joint pain or muscle pain, which are important side effects associated with uh, BTK inhibitors that you just learned about. 
Joint pain is more common in females and we could reduce the dose. Uh, anecdotally, magnesium supplements have been known to uh, be useful and helpful in these cases. But with severe joint pain, we could use a short course of steroids or switch to another BTK inhibitor. With uh, respect to rash, uh, it's often itchy and responsive to steroids. Nails can become brittle with vertical ridges, and biotin supplements and nail oil may help. Headache is a side effect of acalabrutinib, which you learned is, is a second-generation BTK inhibitor, and it resolves with extended treatment, and sometimes treatment with Tylenol alone, with or without caffeine, could help. Um, with uh, the side effect of diarrhea, we oftentimes have to use anti-motility agents such as Imodium. It is also important to note that BTK inhibitors are associated with atrial fibrillation or irregular heartbeat as well as high blood pressure. And Ibrutinib is known to have the highest rate amongst all the BTK inhibitors that are approved in the United States. And uh, increasing the risk of atrial fibrillation almost fourfold. Uh, so the patients should be very vigilant for symptoms such as palpitations and lightheadedness. Typically, we don't discontinue the treatment, but we work very closely with the cardiologist, and we may have to determine, based on the patient's uh, other profile, uh, cardiac profile, we may have to initiate uh, a, a blood thinner to prevent stroke. Um, rarely, uh, ventricular arrhythmias, uh, uh, which can be life-threatening, can occur. Uh, also, it's important to monitor the blood pressure regularly. Uh, minor bleeding can occur in up to two-thirds of patients. Uh, we typically instruct patients to avoid fish oil and vitamin E, which can increase their risk of bleeding. Uh, we don't necessarily have to stop treatment with minor bleeding. Uh, uh, ble uh, bleeding, although we know that this particular symptom can be quite bothersome. It's, it's important to note that it, this is not har a harbinger of major bleeding. In fact, major bleeding can occur in a very small proportion of patients because the BTK inhibitors can affect the platelet function. And therefore, as the Dr. Sarosik was indicating, uh, we may have to hold it before surgery, uh, the BTK inhibitor before surgery, uh, depending on the type of procedure, uh, the duration of holding drug, drug varies. And uh, also, as you all know, infections are quite common among patients with Waldenstrom. Uh, patients may require growth factor support, IVIG sometimes. Uh, uh, we want to make sure prior to starting uh, treatment with rituximab, for instance, that uh, we have checked uh, the, the patient's hepatitis profile because sometimes this they are at increased risk of uh, reactivation of hepatitis. Um, also, now we can switch over to um, subcutaneous or under the skin route of uh, administration of rituximab after um, uh, an initial IV administration if it, the drug is well tolerated. Uh, it's important to also keep in mind that the BTK inhibitors interact with many other drugs and always uh, let your general practitioner or internist know uh, that you are on a BTK inhibitor and they can look up if there is any drug, drug in interaction if they are trying to initiate a new medication. 
And as Dr. Sarasik and Brannigan indicated, this peripheral neuropathy um, can occur with, uh, with uh, uh, bortezomib and some of the other uh, proteasome inhibitors. Um, and the frequency of dosing of bortezomib as well as the manner of administration can be altered to subcutaneous route uh, and weekly instead of uh, twice a week to reduce the risk of peripheral neuropathy. And this is peripheral neuropathy is actually a term used to indicate that the peripheral nerve has been damaged. About one in five patients with WM may have symptoms of peripheral neuropathy even if they are not on bortezomib. To many patients at one end of the spectrum, it's slightly bothersome. Uh, but uh, at the other end of the spectrum, for some patients, it can be quite disabling with severe pain or discomfort. Both hematologists and neurologists manage peripheral neuropathy-related symptoms together. Neurologists, who I feel are like clinical detectives, take a very detailed history and try to put every piece of information that they have gathered into perspective. You know, there's a loop of information that goes in and out of the spinal cord, which is the tail of the brain housed within the spine. And through nerves and peripheral, uh, through the, this loop of information, uh, if something goes wrong, uh, either in the outflow tract that powers the muscle or more commonly the inflowing tract that gathers information from the skin back to the spinal cord or brain, uh, peripheral neuropathy can occur. So uh, it's quite common in, amongst patients in Waldenstrom, but there are other causes of peripheral neuropathy that are unrelated to WM. So it's important to rule out those causes such as diabetes, uh, excessive alcohol use related peripheral neuropathy. So typically this uh, symptom is more common in older men uh, patients may present with unsteadiness or tremors, and numbness in feet, and later numbness in hands. Sometimes the feet feel as if they are bandaged together like a cling wrap, um, with a cling wrap. And at times, they could have, patients could have weakness in ankles, and uh, that could make the unsteadiness worse. Uh, uh, the tingling and burning can even travel up, um, up to the knees. Um, and elbows. And uh, the commonest cause of peripheral neuropathy in WM patients is the abnormal uh, monoclonal protein that is manufactured by the WM cells. It, this protein can target the nerve myelin sheath that covers the nerve, damaging it to it by binding to it. And this is quite uh, similar to the damage uh, to the electrical insulation on a wire that leads to short circuiting. And the wire uh, in turn doesn't work properly. Uh, we perform nerve conduction studies involving electrical stimulation and EMG to assess the pattern of conduction. And we also uh, do some blood work to detect uh, anti-myelin-associated glycoprotein antibodies that bind to myelin, also called anti-MAG antibodies. And uh, there's a significant proportion of patients who actually do, do not need treatment. And for them, it's peripheral neuropathy is more of a nuisance. And the treatment options are not necessarily very good. But our job as clinicians is to identify the patients in whom neuropathy course remains fairly flat. Uh, but uh, among the patients who have progressive uh, moderate to severe neuropathy, the treatment is given primarily to stop this decline. 
And certain neuropathies like uh, those that involve the sticky proteins that Dr. Brannigan was talking about or the cryoglobulins, uh, those neuropathies are less common but can be painful. And patients can be cold uh, intolerant and have other features, including rash, ulceration of skin. Um, sometimes patients um, can have coexisting AL amyloidosis with autonomic nervous dysfunction as well as erectile dysfunction. There are certain medications such as gabapentin, pregabalin, that can be used to improve tingling and discomfort, but numbness cannot be fixed with these drugs. And there are sometimes other neurotransmitter mo modulators such as tricyclic antidepressants that are used. Uh, so ultimately, it boils down to, to, to drilling down the cause. Uh, if it is driven by the underlying WM um, without any other features of active WM-related symptoms, we could use single-agent rituximab, but we, we should be aware of rituximab-induced flare, which can sometimes initially worsen the neuropathy. But if there are coexisting other WM-related sim symptoms, we could use chemotherapies, uh, including some newer agents such as uh, BTK inhibitors. Uh, uh, sometimes um, uh, the, uh, our best friends are, are just the physical therapist, uh, and an occupational therapist, and uh, it's, it's important to tell the patients to use a cane, um, especially if they have unsteady gait. Uh, and, uh, but there's, there's a lot to, that's still to be learned, for example, how to regenerate the nerves successfully and reprogram the nerves. So there's <clears throat> much to be learned still. Uh, also, in terms of our, our, our guidelines to prepare the telehealth and telemedicine appointments, many patients and clinicians are becoming more comfortable with telehealth. For those of who, whom on the call who have still not taken the advantage of this platform, while it might be hard to imagine what a virtual visit will be like, especially if you have never had a healthcare visit that was not in person, but once you do become familiar with this patient-friendly option, you will understand that many such visits, particularly a video visit, can be quite uh, similar to an inpatient visit. Uh, it, it can uh, reduce your stress level from less travel. You are in a more controlled environment. You have the ability to select a doctor from anywhere in the world, even if he isn't in your area. Whatever your reason may be for choosing telehealth, the goal is to make the virtual visit feel like an in-person visit as much as possible. Uh, check with the insurance company to find out if you are covered for a virtual visit. Uh, check your emails for instructions. Reduce the background noise. Close other applications. You should choose a spot with plenty of light. Make sure the camera is st steady. And write down, jot down the important concerns, symptoms that you want to discuss. Prepare the medication list or just gather the pill bottle. Sometimes it's useful to have the recent temperature or weight-related information handy. Write down the previous recent M-spike, free light chain levels, hemoglobin, platelet count, electrolytes, kidney liver function test. And uh, because uh, the, the, the uh, provider at the other end, the oncologist who's evaluating at the virtual platform may not have access to these labs. Uh, uh, because uh, WM patients are immunocompromised, you should make sure that to tell your doctor if there was any infection that occurred, be very vigilant for, for uh, any fevers, 
and uh, let the doctor know if you're on IVIG. Uh, your cl clinician can actually share their screen and can do limited exam. You should keep a flash light handy. Uh, and um, uh, uh, also, uh, the clinician can share images um, and uh, also mail out labs, uh, the, the, the kits, uh, so that uh, the labs can, uh, lab work can arrive uh, before the visit. So there are many, many advantages of telehealth, and we could go on and on. Uh, but this is some. This is an option that is available to most of the patients uh, anywhere in the world today. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Kapoor. Outstanding presentation, really stellar, and so many details to everybody, and um, just a fantastic presentation. I know there'll be questions to you during the Q and A as well. Thank you so much. Um, and our next speaker. Um, is, um, is Dr. Um, Peter Donardis, and uh, Mr. Donardis is IDEMF uh, Chair of the Board of Trustees um, of IWF, and he will be addressing the free programs and services of IWF. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, um, Mr. Donardis. Hello, everyone. I'd like to first thank Dr. Messner and Cancer Care for coordinating this teleconference for the global WM community. Uh, their efforts on our behalf are very much appreciated. Uh, I'd especially like to extend our gratitude to Drs. Brannigan, Kapoor, and Soroshik for their continued dedication to everyone affected by WM and for taking time out of their busy schedules to talk to all of us today on this very important topic. Uh, the information provided by the doctors today helps us immensely in our journey to live well with WM. I'd like to encourage everyone listening to continue to stay abreast of the latest developments regarding WM, and the best way to do so is by taking advantage of the services provided by the IWMF. We're the only organization dedicated specifically to providing education and support to patients, caregivers, family, and friends affected by WM, while also promoting much-needed research specific to the disease. While we're headquartered in the U.S., we have affiliates spanning the globe encompassing over 25 countries, along with a strong network of over 60 support groups in the United States alone. Uh, the services provided range from support groups, uh, email and Facebook discussion groups, a quarterly magazine, a weekly news bulletin, uh, periodic webinars, and uh, stories of hope, and also an annual ed forum. So if today's teleconference whets your appetite for more information about WM, consider attending the 2022 Ed Forum on August 27 and 28, which will be entirely virtual. You can participate in the events from the comfort of your own home or office. And this year, the forum includes a couple of pre-forum primer sessions, one of which is on June 15th. You can register to attend for free at the IWMF website at iwmf.com. So I encourage all of you to take advantage of our services by visiting the website, to become educated and engaged WM patients and caregivers, and to help each other in our journey towards a better future with WM, and of course, always to consult with your physician. Working together, we can all live better with WM and continue to work towards a world without WM. Best of health to all. Oh, thank you so much, Mr. Narison. It's such a wonderful resource. Please, everybody, if you're not already connected to IWF, take advantage of this wonderful organization. It's just amazing. And we are honored to, uh, to partner with them on this program today and for, for many years now. Thank you. 
I'm going to say just a, a word or two about Cancer Care as a resource. Um, you'll all, all be getting a survey monkey evaluation tomorrow, and in that evaluation, there will be an evaluation, but there also will be all the resources that we've given you today um, from IWMF and Cancer Care. So Cancer Care is a national organization helping people with all different types of cancer, including WM. And we have a hope line that people can call. It's an 800 number and a website as well, which really describes all of our services. Um, they're delivered by oncology social workers. And we offer both practical financial and co-payment assistance as well as support um, and uh, online support groups, case management, and um, a number of other services, programs like this one today, about 75 of these per year, and various publications. So I encourage you to take advantage of these free services as well. And now we're going to move on to um, the questions that you all have. I'm going to ask um, Grace to bring all of our speakers on board. I'm going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Um, Grace, if you could explain mm -hmm. to everybody how to queue up for questions. Absolutely. Thank you, Dr. Messner. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web, please submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Excellent. And um, so our first question is um, for Dr. Brannigan. Please discuss the use of ablation to control, correct a AFEB caused by a BTK inhibitor and the use of Watchman cardiac implant for those of us that do not want to be on an anticoagulant. Oh, sure. Well, well, um, I, th I think it was Prashant that um, talked about this in a little more detail. Do you want to take first crack at that, uh, Prashant? Sure. Uh, this would be actually a more appropriate question for the cardiologist. Uh, certainly, uh, uh, there are more options available today to tackle uh, atrial fibrillation than ever before. Having said that, uh, there are certain anticoagulants that must be avoided, such as vitamin K antagonists, such as Coumadin. But uh, we have a fair, I would say, a fair amount of experience using some of the other blood thinners uh, that are relatively safe, although the dose may have to be adjusted. And one of the, that, uh, one of such uh, blood thinners is Apixaban. Uh, which uh, does not uh, uh, have that high, uh, I should say, risk of bleeding as uh, some of the other ones. Uh, so, and then there is also uh, Lovenox, a low molecular weight heparin that can be utilized in patients who have uh, a decent amount of uh, platelets um, in their blood. So, so there are options. I wouldn't say that blood thinners are absolute contraindications. Uh, uh, for uh, concomitant treatment with BTK inhibitors. There were some bad experiences with the initial use of uh, Coumadin um, uh, in, in a clinical trial uh, with uh, Ibrutinib, uh, and that is why that is avo uh, avoided. And also, as I mentioned, fish oil and vitamin E should be avoided. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and question for Dr. Um, Brannigan. When should Evushed be Ever shall be repeated? Uh, yeah, that's a that's a great question. So um, uh, the um, 
recommended interval is six months, uh, but um, uh, these things are constantly changing, and, and because supply is limited, um, it's possible that um, uh, preference will be to get people their initial dose first, uh, but we expect a around six months uh, to when, that's when actually you, you could get it, but, um, you know, supply chain issues and, and availability may limit that. Um, and so we don't yet know um, for how long, but the, the thought is, uh, is every six months, ideally. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and for Dr. Sarasek, um, what is the percent of WM patients that transform to another blood cancer, and what cancers are they? So generally speaking, the um, malignancy that we get concerned about is um, transformation to an aggressive lymphoma, typically a diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. And that can happen depending on the numbers you look at, maybe 5 to 10% of the time. But, um, but really that depends on, um, on the mutational status. So sometimes mid-88 status can actually affect the risk of that. Uh, with a higher risk in patients who don't have a mid-88 mutation. Um, so that's generally the, the most common malignancy that we worry about. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and um, a question uh, for Dr. Branigan is Paxlovid administered by PCP or oncologist? Uh, so, so it can be administered by any, any doctor. Um, uh, because um, you know, when you have Waldenstrom's, you, you have an oncologist and a treating team, um, and that's what makes you immunocompromised. You know, my preference is to make sure you check in with your um, uh, Waldenstrom's providers. Uh, it, it need not be, if, if you know, but um, I think that's always good, and it's always good for them to know um, uh, that you need the drug. So that's my that's my bias, but but really anybody can prescribe it. And you can, you know, prescribe it if you're out of the state, or it can be called into any any pharmacy. I don't. I know there's some some folks internationally, so I don't. Um, I don't know how to answer the question there. I can't call a prescription to Australia, unfortunately. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, and um, um, I hope that's helpful to our participants. Um, so if you're in each, each of you from other countries will want to check with with what the protocol there is. Um, um, so, um, this question for Dr. Sarasek, if you received a BTX inhibitor for treatment and ran relapse, will, there, will another BTK inhibitor be effective? That's a great question. And generally speaking, if someone progresses on one of the um, medications, ibrutinib, zanubrutinib, or calibrutinib, um, we wouldn't expect those same three drugs to be effective, so I wouldn't switch from one of those to the other. But the newer, what are called non-covalent BTK inhibitors, like the one I mentioned, pertubrutinib, that actually is designed to help, um, to be helpful in situations where people progress on one of those first three that are currently available in the U.S. So um, with the newer versions of BTK inhibitors, it might be a possibility. The ones that are currently FDA approved, we don't interchange between those. And a question for Dr. Kapoor, what tests exactly are given to identify if fatigues are related to WM? So uh, fatigue generally <coughs> coincides with the drop in hemoglobin, mm -hmm. uh, but 
there is also circulation uh, of uh, IgM and uh, cytokines as well. Uh, uh, there, a, a lot of factors simultaneously uh, are taken into account uh, uh, when we are dealing with this problem. Uh, usually, if it is WM-related, uh, uh, with treatment, uh, there is an improvement of hemoglobin and uh, drop in the IgM levels, and uh, that leads to an improvement. Again, if it is treatment-related, uh, that would require uh, modification of the treatment. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, and a question from Dr. Brannigan. Um, diagnosis is WM and ITP. Is this fairly common? Do you treat both in combination? Currently on Promacta, Promacta and hematologists would like to add Imbruvica. Um, yeah, no, that, that's, a, that's a great question. I, I don't want to get into a specific clinical recommendation uh, because obviously I don't have the whole picture. Uh, that, that, that should be talked about with your doctor. But yes, that is something we can see. Uh, but you do have to make sure it's not a, 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 another reason, um, that it's a direct relation for bone marrow crowding, for instance. Uh, but yes, if it's just uh, an autoimmune phenomenon, ITP, that can be treated uh, with things like steroids alone or perhaps other other therapies that's uh, that we do occasionally see that Excellent. well I want to thank our speakers you've really been absolutely phenomenal and I also want to thank all of our participants as well for asking such great questions and I have to say that we do have um, questions that would definitely um, take us into the um, into at least another hour or two on this call and really um, so I want to address that as well um, but I do want to thank both our speakers and, of course, all of our um, wonderful participants on this call. And we've done these programs before. I have to say the questions on today's program have been really uh, incredible, and our speakers have been incredible as well. So, so I want to address the issue of the questions that you still have. That, um, and I do want to also address the issue um, that Dr. Brennigan mentioned, that, uh, that even when you ask a question here today, we want you to so if you've asked a question, if you have a question yet to ask or will, are thinking of a question you'd like to ask or more questions, we'd like you to go back to treating healthcare team. They, of course, know you the best. They know um, they, have, they have access to your medical records. And um, so see this as a role play for those who got to ask a question of asking a question. And one answer that you heard from all of our speakers was a great question. So your questions are great questions. And please continue asking them and if you have to ask them over and over again until you get the answer that you need. You also have the IWMF to call because they have wonderful resources for you around WM. They are kind of the only world-specific organization, um, international organization, um, that um, has information um, on WM. And so they're a great resource for all of you. Um, and as we conclude the program today, I would not want any one of you to feel you're alone in coping with WM or any type of cancer. I want you to know that you're part of a community support. We're all here to help you. And you are simply a phone call or a mouse click away um, from someone's website to contact. We don't want you just to go to any website. For WM, we want you to go to the IWF website. That is the place to go to. Um, and for any type of support, they are also a great resource. And they will refer you to organizations that you may need um, for other types of services. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all.
Thank you, Dr. Messner. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop on Illuminatus Connect. Have a great day, everyone.